0: Today's scripture reading is from Joshua 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests carrying it, you are to move from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things through you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you, as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing it piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground. While all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing, on dry ground.
1: Thanks, Amanda. Why don't you go ahead and open to that text that she just read for us, Joshua chapter 3. If you have your Bibles with you, great. If not, and you want to use one, you should find one down in one of the chair racks around you. Everybody doing okay this morning? Yeah? Kind of? Okay. Well, let's go ahead. Joshua 3. If you're a guest with us this morning, I'm glad you're here, but let me just explain to you what we're doing. We're in the middle of a series called Miracles in which we are examining the mysterious, out of the ordinary, uh, hard to comprehend things that that God has done in our world and in the lives of his people down through history. In order to set a rational and theological foundation for understanding them, we began a couple of weeks ago with an overview of miracles. If you missed that, I highly encourage you to go online and listen to it because it really does set the the stage for everything that we're talking. Talking about, I think you'll find it very, very helpful. But here's the deal I mean, for anyone who doesn't believe in God, there's no such thing as miracles. End of discussion. Uh, But if you believe God exists, as do over 90% of Americans, then it's only rational to believe that miracles are possible. You know, although rare events can occur, God can do things that we can't fully explain. And because the word miracle has become so overused and watered down in our culture, we defined a miracle in the strictest biblical sense as an astonishing event that occurs when the power of God transcends what's normally perceived as natural law and cannot be explained upon any known natural basis. It's the bush that burns without being consumed. It's it's water turning to wine. It's a virgin conceiving a child. Uh, It is the immediate drying up of a flooded river ever. Uh, so that people can walk across on dry land and that is in fact the miracle I want to look at with you this morning in Joshua 3 now to set the historical context most of you know the story after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness the people of Israel uh, were facing a new era in their life as a nation they were poised to cross the Jordan River and inherit a land of their own and while they believed that God would give them that land you know they wondered how that was going to happen you know what their experience was going to be like on the other side because in terms of specifics the future was unknown. I mean, Joshua, their leader, admits that. He says, you, you guys have never been this way before. And so, while it was an exciting time for God's people, it was also a traumatic time, both as, in, as individuals and as a nation, because it was a time of transition. You know, every life uh, has transitional moments. Those times when we face the unknown, you know, times when we're presented with new opportunities, new challenges. Uh, new decisions to make that will lead us in a direction that we've never been before. While those can be exciting times, they can also tend to be very traumatic for us. Some refer to them as crossover moments or moments of truth or defining moments. Whatever the label is, the reality is we all experience instances when God brings us to a place where we know we don't want to go backwards, but the thought of moving ahead is is somewhat scary. And we experience these moments as individuals, and we experience them as, as a church. But the question is... How do we deal with them? You know, how do we overcome our fear of the unknown and move forward to receive all that God has for us? Well, uh, from a human perspective, uh, it requires risk. It requires risk. A uh, well-known Christian pastor and theologian, John Piper, just recently wrote this book entitled Risk is Right. And in the book, he stresses how, as God's people, we are called to live by faith you know, and faith requires risk. And Piper defines risk this way. He says it's an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. Risk is possible because we don't know how things will turn out. This means that God can take no risks. His omniscience rules out the possibility. But not so with us. We are not God. We are ignorant. We do not know what will happen tomorrow. Piper is is spot on. He's he's right. We we are not God, therefore we are not omniscient, and therefore we really have no idea in terms of specifics what the future brings. And yet God has promised us as his people. He's promised to be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. He's called us to mission. He's called us to trust him. But in order for that to be a reality, we have to be willing to risk, you see. And for me, this experience of Joshua and the Israelites helps demonstrate what risk really involves. Uh, For example, uh, risk involves that we recognize moments of opportunity. For the Israelites, it was it was long in coming, but their moment had now arrived. It was time to cross the Jordan into the Promised Land, which was going to be a brand-new experience for everybody except for Joshua, the leader, and, and a guy named Caleb, who we know... Uh, Moses had sent out into the land already. They had crossed over and came back already. But for everybody else, this crossing was a new deal. But the text says the Jordan River was at flood stage. And so you can just imagine some of the apprehension people must have felt as they stood on the banks of the river watching the water flow by and knowing that God wanted them on the other side, but the prospect of crossing had to have been a little intimidating and a bit scary. I mean, these weren't boating people. You know, this was a whole new thing. So uh, it was it was scary. And I, I'm guessing that most of us here this morning get what that's like. We we've experienced the kind of fear that tends to come with crossover moments, you know, when we anxiously stand on the edge of our sort of our own Jordan River, seeing before us a great flood. We see obstacles or some barrier that that threatens to hamper our progress in becoming who God wants us to be and accomplishing what he's called us to accomplish. And and like the Israelites, you know, there's a part of us that wants to cling to what's comfortable. We want to hold on to what's familiar, despite that down deep inside, we sense God calling us to move ahead. And if you don't you don't know what that's like, that's that's good for you. But I tell you what, I have those moments moments of anxiety i do but just as he did with the israelites god wants to help me wants to help all of us kind of break through our comfort zones overcome our fears and become a crossover people who are willing to to grow and expand and claim new territory and impact our world and inherit the future god has in store for us and yet the reality is it's part of our our human nature to fear the unknown and to doubt our ability to face challenges and not only that it's it's our cultural inclination because we live in a society that is, that is all about comfort. It's all about convenience. It's all about security. But the reality is, in an unpredictable world, true security is a mirage. It doesn't exist. Every direction we turn, there are unknown. Whether we stay hidden under the covers at home and quiver like little bunny rabbits or we ride the freeways of, of the world, it doesn't matter. Risk is woven in the very fabric of our finite lives. Yet the myth of safety and the enchantment of security tend to paralyze us from taking risks for the for the cause of God. And so the first step in overcoming fear and this kind of paralysis is to recognize divine moments of opportunity. Now, for anyone who's been around Parkview for any length of time, you know that God has done some amazing things here uh, among His people. I mean, in the past six years alone, we have grown 124 percent, and more and more and more, we're seeing people encounter God in a in real way and experience real faith. Part of the reason for that is they're they're understanding the, the reality of God's grace and the whole idea of religion and performance and all the, that kind of thing that just weighs us down and creates a lot of guilt kind of peels away and drops off, and suddenly the light bulb. All start popping in people's mind and in their heart and their spirits and they realize what God's grace is all about and it changes them from the inside out. And suddenly serving and giving and participating comes from a place of joy and, and freedom, not guilt and, and burden. You know what I'm saying? And so we're seeing that happen in a whole lot of a whole lot of people. We've been serving our community the last several years in very, kind of very new, creative ways that we didn't, we never anticipated. I mean, this whole school deal that Dave mentioned. You know, those two schools are, are two of the most uh, under-resourced schools in DuPage County, and they needed help. And we just went and said, how, how might we be able to help you? And God opened these opportunities to to do some pretty cool stuff with the teachers and with the students and the families, having a, a team of mentors, thirty some mentors involved, and th- those we, those are things we could not have anticipated. Just in the last two years, we've given given away about a half a million dollars to people in need both here in our in our own area and, our, and across the globe bringing water to people who are thirsty bringing freedom to people in captivity and so it's important for us to acknowledge and, and really celebrate what god has done and that's basically you know what joshua does here in this story the only difference is he takes it a bit further and he not only sees what god had had, had done in the life of those of people in the past but more strategically and i think you know more in terms of vision he was he was able to see what God could do in their future because Joshua believed that God if God could part the waters of the Red Sea then he could certainly part the Jordan River you know he and the people had to admit to their fear and then face head on what threatened to keep them from trusting God. At this point, it was this river. Now, I've been to the Jordan River, and I've been on the west side, and I've looked out over the river and over the plains of Moab at Israel, so I I can envision what they were looking at. And today, if you stand at the the Jordan, the Jordan isn't that intimidating today. Part of the reason for that is uh, Israel and Jordan uh, to the north have, they basically siphoned off so much water from the Jordan through irrigation systems that the Jordan has really narrowed down to, not really being very intimidating, but that wasn't true in Joshua's day. Uh, it was much larger, and with heavy rains that came in spring and the melting snow flowing down out of the mountains in the north and off Mount Hermon in the north, the text said that Jordan was at a flood stage. And again, this, these weren't boating people. This was, you know, water was a new deal for them. And so, it's interesting to me what Joshua does first before anything else. What does he do? He leads the people right to the edge of the water. Where they camp for three days, and in other words they get they get plenty of time to face what at that very moment was their their greatest obstacle now, maybe you 're here with us this morning, and you are at a sort of a crossover moment in your personal life maybe you're trying to decide on what college to go to or whether to go or, to college or not maybe it's a career opportunity or career move that you're contemplating or it's the question of, of marriage or maybe it's a ministry opportunity or a service opportunity out in your community and you're trying to decide what to do or perhaps for some of us it's more a moment of crisis you know it's the it's dealing with the pain of a broken relationship or a lost job or a financial failure or, or maybe it's a life-threatening illness I mean here's the thing i don 't know i don 't know what your moment is, I just know we all have them. you know we have them as a church you know we believe as a church that God is leading us to expand our spiritual impact and influence uh, in the days ahead here, both here at seven sixty four Saint Charles Road but also you know to our east and to uh, to plant a, a satellite campus to Uh, establish a a community center that helps actually meet the needs of struggling under-resourced families and students to uh, expand our partnerships in in any further east in places like the far east like kolkata india and get on board with some things that god is doing there i mean how exactly is god going to enable us to do all that well i don't know there are uncertainties in the future there are obstacles to overcome but that's always true it's true for us as individuals. It's true for us as a church. There are times when we all stand just facing what seems to be insurmountable floodwaters, these obstacles uh, before us, and we're anxious. We're, we're, we're a little scared and intimidated, yet we sense God calling us to cross over, to move ahead. Well, here's the deal. This is what I've, is what I've learned over the years as a Christian. I've learned that God does His greatest work in flood conditions. And, and so as individuals and as a church, we, we, we must recognize these challenging moments more as opportunities for God to do something significant in our lives and in our ministry and decide what it is that keeps us from moving ahead. Because that's what Joshua and the Israelites did. As you read on, you find that before going forward, they also did something else. They ensured their success in overcoming the obstacles. How do they do that? Three ways. First and foremost, they determined to follow God no matter what. And this is revealed in kind of a unique way. During the wilderness days, we know that Israel followed a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But at this point in their history, those two supernatural occurrences were gone and the Ark of the Covenant takes its place. And so in verse 2, we're told that, after three days of camping, uh, before the, right on the edge of the river, the officers went throughout the camp giving the orders to the people. Hey, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions. Follow it, they said. And then you'll know which way to go since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark and do not go near it. Now, in Joshua 3 and 4 alone, the, the Ark is mentioned 15 times. And as most of you realize, it's a fascinating thing for a lot of people. It's in, The Ark has inspired movies. It's the topic of articles in Time Magazine, Smithsonian Magazine. It's the subject of the History Channel, uh, the, the Discovery Channel. But what exactly was the Ark? And basically, it was this. And this is kind of a representation of what it might have looked like based on the description of Exodus 25. But it was basically an ornate box that was viewed as the portable throne of Israel of Israel's invisible God. And the ark contained a number of items. For example, it contained the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were recorded by Moses, and indeed it possibly held the entire covenant teaching. So in a way, the ark symbolized the commands and the promises God had established with his people. It also contained a jar of manna. The word manna meant... What's this stuff, basically? But it was, the manna was the stuff that God provided every morning for the to, Israelites to eat uh, when they were hungry. So he, it was about him nourishing them during their wilderness experience. So what it came down to is that essentially the ark represented the presence of God among his people. But it's interesting because in verse 4, the Israelites are told to stay away from it, man. 2,000 cubits, which in our, in, our, in our measurements is about 1,000 yards away. Some suggest this was because no one was allowed to touch the ark, which was true, except for the priests. But I think in this situation, it was, it was more than that. I think that it was about keeping the ark far enough away from everybody so that all the people could see it from a distance as it was held up in the middle of the river during the crossing. And that way, as the people crossed, not only would they see the waters pushed back around them, and not only would they feel the dry land beneath them, but more importantly, they could see the ark ahead of them. It had gone before them. It was a reminder that God was with them and would keep their path safe, dry, and firm. But not only did the people determine to follow God and trust him, they also committed to the mission that God had given them. Uh, Joshua in verse 5 says, Consecrate yourself, yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Which indicates to me, at least, that Joshua wasn't as concerned with military preparation heading into the land as he was with spiritual preparation i mean the people faced new opportunities they face new challenges and so they were instructed to consecrate themselves now for the israelites at the time that meant that they would wash themselves with water they would wash their clothes symbolically expressing their commitment to obeying god and engaging uh, this mission put before them the hebrew term we translate consecrate literally means to set something or set oneself apart for a special purpose. In fact, what's really interesting here, and I don't have time to go into all of it, but back in Exodus 14, when, when God parted the Red Sea with Moses, right, the Hebrew text says that the people went through or they walked through the sea, they walked through the water. But here in this text, Hebrew, the Hebrew reads that the people crossed over the, the water. And the Hebrew term that's used for crossing is used 21 times in Joshua 3 and 4. And it's a a unique term. It's the term abar. And it means to go over or to cross with intention. say, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because when the Israelites walked through the Red Sea with Moses, it was an escape, right? I mean, it was all about getting away. It was all about liberation. But now, crossing the Jordan was all about mission. This was an intentional and strategic maneuver geared toward accomplishing what God called His people to accomplish. Go represent Him in a pagan culture and receive the land. And the, and the blessing that he had promised. I mean, understand something about God. God is immutable. Do you know what that word means? It's a big fancy word. It just means that God doesn't change. He doesn't change. He always calls his people to mission. It was true of Abraham. It was true of, of Moses. It was true of Joshua. It was true of the nation of Israel. And it's true of his church today. We are called to mission, to intentionally go out and into our culture in which we live and represent God. Jesus said, Go. Right? He said, go locally to your communities and families. Go locally. Go regionally. Jesus said, go globally to the ends of the earth. So in short, as God's people, we are to consecrate ourselves for mission. Only for us, it's not about washing ourselves or washing our clothes. It's, it's about intentionally setting apart our time and our energy and our abilities and our resources, basically setting apart our lives for a distinct purpose to accomplish our God-given mission. That's what the Israelites did. But they did one more thing uh, to ensure success. They chose to follow courageous leadership. As you read the text, verse 6 through the end of the uh, the text, you find that the people, you find them adhering to the direction of Joshua and the priests. In other words, the spiritual leaders that God had put in place before them. And who, by the way, would enter the Jordan River first? I mean, Joshua had already been over once already. And so, in some ways, this part of the story speaks to two groups of people. First, it speaks to God's people in general and the message is this that as his people, we must be willing to humbly submit and follow the spiritual leaders that God God places sovereignly places before us. To in times of trial and challenge and confusion and in pursuit of mission, adhere to their wisdom. Their insight, their vision, just as Israelites listened to Joshua and followed the priests right into the river. Some of you may say, well, that kind of followership was just for the nation of Israel. But that's not true. And what I would argue is the most ignored verse in the New Testament scriptures. The writer of Hebrews says to Christians in the church, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account to God. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. But I would like to also point out, and to do so quickly before you rush to the stage, that uh, this this verse in, in Hebrews 13, as well as this account of Israel's crossing, also speaks to those in leadership, and I would say even more so. And the message to leaders is this. God will never ask something of his people that he doesn't ask first of his leaders. Never. Just as the priests were to humbly submit to God and lead the way into the Jordan so those in leadership in the church are to call are called to submit to God and humbly lead God's people into uncharted waters. And you might say, "Well, that's all well and good for you to say and talk about because you're a leader." And that's true. But let me tell you something about leadership. It's not all it's cracked up to be. It's not all that glorious. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of criticism. And to be honest, there's a heavy and sometimes overwhelming sense of responsibility because with leadership comes, as the writer of Hebrews says, greater accountability before God. And that is a humbling and intimidating thing, at least for me. And yet leadership requires an engaging of risk. Leadership requires bold decisions, the kind, the kind not, everyone, not everybody's willing to make. But leaders have to make them. The famed 20th century German pastor and theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, during World War II, tried to rally Christian leaders and tried to rally the church to stand against Nazi fascism. But many people were unwilling to make the hard and risky decision to do so. And Bonhoeffer, in a letter to a fellow theologian and leader, wrote this about decisions. He said, To procrastinate and prevaricate simply because you're afraid of erring seems to me almost to run counter to faith and love. To delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. And I think Bonhoeffer was right. Here's the point. With true leadership comes higher accountability before God. With leadership comes the responsibility of making tough decisions. With leadership comes the, the willingness to engage with risk. And with leadership comes, well, the responsibility to lead by way of example. True leaders go first. They go first in submission to God. They go first in humility. They go first in serving and giving and moving forward. And so as the nation of Israel stood on the banks of the Jordan, they, they recognized this moment as a moment of opportunity, and they, they ensured success, and they followed their leaders right into the river. So in other words, they stepped out in faith. Verse 14 says, you know, when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. The Jordan was flooded. And verse 15 says, yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing, piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan, stood on dry ground, while all of Israel passed by, until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Now, think about that for a second. That's a pretty incredible event, a miracle in the truest sense. God immediately stopped the rushing floodwaters, uh, backed them up to the north, dried the way south to the Dead Sea, uh, all the way north to the to the what scholars believe was the town of Adam, uh, located about 30 miles upriver. Which for me, I'm like, well, why did God push the the waters back so far? I don't pretend to know the mind of God, but I have a couple of Ideas. I'm thinking one of the reasons just practical that an entire nation had to cross here, right? I mean, two million people or so with all their livestock and their supplies. So rather than, rather than funnel them through, God provided a large swath of area for the crossing. But also, I mean, can you imagine what happened to the faith of the Israelites when they saw what God did? How their confidence in Him, their confidence in themselves and their ability to do things, how it soared? It must have. On the other hand, think about how this visible display of God's power must have been heard and seen by some of the Canaanites living on the other side of the river. What do you suppose it did to them? We know from uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua, that they were already melting in fear because they had heard rumors of these Israelites and their God and what they did in, in Egypt. So you can just imagine what they were feeling after this spectacle. I mean, understand, with this miracle... God wasn't only confirming Joshua's leadership, which we know is part of it in verse 7, but he was again, in, in a bigger way, demonstrating his power to all of his people as well as to the world around them. That he was and is the one true God with the ability to do the unimaginable. And by the way, when was it that God did the unimaginable? When did he perform the miracle? Was it when Joshua gave the order to go? Was it when the nation broke camp and headed to the edge of the water? Was it when everybody said, yeah, we believe, let's do it? No, it's not any of those things. Get this, God didn't push back the water until the priest's feet actually stepped into the river. It wasn't until they took the risk. It wasn't until they took that step of faith into into the unknown that God did his work. And so what does that tell us about crossover moments? It tells me that we can stand face-to-face with the challenges of life and ministries and the obstacles and all that, and we can pay lip service all we want to God's ability to help us and, and enable us to overcome our fear of the future, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. But it's not until we take that first step of faith into the flood rivers of the unknown, it's not until then that we will see God do something great. The faith of the leaders, the faith of the people was defined not by their words or claims, but by their steps forward. How has your faith been defined lately? Maybe you've been coming to Parfu for a while and you've sensed God leading you to become part of this, this church family and to get on board with the mission that we're trying to accomplish and bring spiritual life and impact to our, our community and world. And so you sense He's calling you to serve, maybe to lead a life group, to work with children or students, or maybe it's God's opening some opportunities in the community to serve and represent the church there and represent Jesus there. You know, maybe God is is calling you to a new level of financial giving. I mean, it's no secret. A growing church has growing expenses, staff needs, facility needs, ministry needs. Maybe God is prompting you to play a more significant role in that area. And the thing is, I don't know. I don't know what God is calling you to. I'm just asking, you know, have you taken your first step toward doing it? Because God's waiting for you (laughs) to take the risk. He's waiting for you to walk by faith into the water. Are you willing to step in? Or are you going to stay on the bank of the river? I mean, if that's where you're leaning, then maybe the final thing that helped the Israelites will help you and I, and that's knowing God goes first. Think about it. This was true here at the, at the Jordan, right? I mean, ultimately, it was God who went first into the water. That, that reality is emphasized in verse 3, 6, 8, 11, 14, and 15. Because remember, for Israel, the ark represented God's going first into the unknown. It served to remind the people that every path we face that's new to us is not new to God. He's gone ahead of us. He waits for us. And as we in the church stand on the bank of the Jordan River in our own lives and in in ministry, we need to remember that God is capable of making a way through the flood. You know, He will walk ahead of us. He will walk with us, keeping us on solid ground. He'll walk behind us until we reach safety, no matter the challenge, no matter the obstacle. I mean, even think of this, even through the darkest moment of death itself, God goes first, right? I mean, death is the greatest crossover moment any of us will ever face, And yet Jesus assures us that he has taken the sting out of death because he's gone before us. His victory is our victory. And he'll walk through the Jordan of death with us, graciously bringing us to the other side into his kingdom, our land of eternal promise. Or as King David wrote in the Psalms in the Old Testament, even though I walk through the darkest of valleys, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for God. You are with me. And so think about it, man. I mean, if if Jesus is willing to lead the way into death and secure our victory over it, don't you think? he'll he'll do the same in other areas of our lives and ministry. He will. And so no matter what the moment, you know, whether it's decision or transition or challenge or crisis or even death itself, know, know that God goes before us. It seems to me that sometimes as Christians in the church and as a church, really, we avoid thinking about and talking about the fact that, that we are called to live by faith we 're called to refuse to allow the myth of safety and security to paralyze us from attempting great things for god, but here 's the deal: The power and promises of God are fleshed out not just in the life of ancient Israel but in our lives every single day and in indeed the life of our church and so as we look to the future and as we face the unknowns and the challenges and the obstacles, make no mistake about it, if we desire to grow and expand in our relationship with God and claim new territory for, for Jesus and impact our world spiritually, make a difference and inherit all that God, God has for us and to see and experience His power, perhaps like never before, then we, we must be a crossover type people. We must be. We've got to believe that God will part the waters, that He will secure our footing, that He'll lead us into the land of promise and blessing if, if we're willing to risk, if we're willing to recognize these moments as moments of divine opportunity and ensure our success and step out in faith and most of all know that God goes first before us. That's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of people I want us to be. And for the sake of our world, that's the kind of people we need to be. Let's pray. Our Father, I think we can all agree and confess that by nature we fear the unknown. Uh, We do. It's scary. It's intimidating. We often want to cling to what's comfortable, to cling to what's familiar. Living in a culture that we do, this myth of security, this enchantment of safety tends to paralyze us from taking risks for the sake of the cause of Jesus. And it holds us back from becoming the kind of men and women and students and the kind of people, the kind of church that you you call us to be, that you want us to be. It keeps us from reaching our greatest potential. And yet we only have one life to live. We have one shot at this thing called life. And you've called us to trust you. And in order to do that, we have to be willing to take risks. We have to be people who walk by faith and i ask god that you would you would enable us to be that kind of people give us the courage to do so in jesus name we pray amen